Book the Second, Part Seven. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter Nineteen: An Opinion. Worn out by anxious watching, Mister Lorry fell asleep at his post. On the tenth morning of his suspense, he was startled by the shining of the sun into the room where a heavy slumber had overtaken him when it was dark night. He rubbed his eyes and roused himself, but he doubted, when he had done so, whether he was not still asleep. For going to the door of the doctor's room and looking in, he perceived that the shoemaker's bench and tools were put aside again, and that the doctor himself sat reading at the window. He was in his usual morning dress, and his face, which Mr. Lorry could distinctly see, though still very pale, was calmly studious and attentive. Even when he had satisfied himself that he was awake, Mr. Lorry felt giddily uncertain, for some few moments, whether the late shoemaking might not be a disturbed dream of his own. For did not his eyes show him his friend before him in his accustomed clothing and aspect, and employed as usual? And was there any sign within their range that the change of which he had so strong an impression had actually happened? It was but the inquiry of his first confusion and astonishment, the answer being obvious. If the impression were not produced by real, corresponding, and sufficient cause, how came he, Jarvis Lorry, there? How came he to have fallen asleep in his clothes on the sofa in Dr. Manette's consulting-room, and to be debating these points outside the doctor's bedroom door in the early morning? Within a few minutes, Miss Pross stood whispering at his side. If he had had any particle of doubt left, her talk would of necessity have resolved it. But he was by that time clear-headed, and had none. He advised that they should let the time go by until the regular breakfast hour, and should then meet the doctor as if nothing unusual had occurred. If he appeared to be in his customary state of mind, Mr. Lorry would then cautiously proceed to seek direction and guidance from the opinion he had been in his anxiety so anxious to obtain. Miss Pross submitting herself to his judgment, the scheme was worked out with care. Having abundance of time for his usual methodical toilette, Mr. Lorry presented himself at the breakfast hour in his usual white linen, and with his usual neat leg. The doctor was summoned in the usual way, and came to breakfast. So far as it was possible to comprehend him, without overstepping those delicate and gradual approaches which Mr. Lorry felt to be the only safe advance, he at first supposed that his daughter's marriage had taken place yesterday. An incidental allusion, purposely thrown out to the day of the week and the day of the month, set him thinking and counting, and evidently made him uneasy. In all other respects, however, he was so composedly himself that Mr. Lorry determined to have the aid he sought, and that aid was his own. Therefore, when the breakfast was done and cleared away, and he and the doctor were left together, Mr. Lorry said, feelingly, "'My dear Manette, I am anxious to have your opinion, in confidence, on a very curious case in which I am deeply interested. That is to say, it is very curious to me.' Perhaps, to your better information, it may be less so. Glancing at his hands, which were discoloured by his late work, the doctor looked troubled and listened attentively. 
He had already glanced at his hands more than once. "'Dr. Manette,' said Mr. Lorry, touching him affectionately on the arm, "'the case is the case of a particularly dear friend of mine. Pray give your mind to it, and advise me well for his sake, and, above all, his daughter's, my dear Manette.' "'If I understand,' said the doctor, in a subdued tone, "'some mental shock—' "'Yes.' "'Be explicit,' said the doctor. "'Spare no detail.' Mr. Lorry saw that they understood one another, and proceeded. "'My dear Manette, it is the case of an old and a prolonged shock, of great acuteness and severity to the affections, the feelings, the—the, the, as you express it, the mind. It is the case of a shock under which the sufferer was borne down, one cannot say for how long, because, I believe, he cannot calculate the time himself, and there are no other means of getting at it. It is the case of a shock from which the sufferer recovered, by a process that he cannot trace himself, as I once heard him publicly relate in a striking manner. It is the case of a shock from which he has recovered so completely as to be a highly intelligent man, capable of close application of mind, and great exertion of body, and of constantly making fresh additions to his stock of knowledge, which was already very large. But, unfortunately, there has been—he paused and took a deep breath—a slight relapse. The doctor, in a low voice, asked, "'Of how long duration?' Nine days and nights. "'How did it show itself? I infer—' glancing at his hands again, in the resumption of some old pursuit connected with the shock. That is the fact. Now, did you ever see him? asked the doctor, distinctly and collectedly, though in the same low voice, engaged in that pursuit originally? Once. And when the relapse fell on him, was he in most respects, or in all respects, as he was then, I think in all respects. You spoke of his daughter. Does his daughter know of the relapse? No, it has been kept from her, and I hope will always be kept from her. It is known only to myself, and to one other who may be trusted. The doctor grasped his hand and murmured, That was very kind. That was very thoughtful. Mr. Lorry grasped his hand in return and neither of the two spoke for a little while. "'Now, my dear Manette,' said Mr. Lorry, at length, in his most considerate and most affectionate way, "'I am a mere man of business, and unfit to cope with such intricate and difficult matters. I do not possess the kind of information necessary. I do not possess the kind of intelligence. I want guiding.' There is no man in this world on whom I could so rely for right guidance as on you. Tell me, how does this relapse come about? Is there danger of another? Could a repetition of it be prevented? How should a repetition of it be treated? How does it come about at all? What can I do for my friend? No man can ever have been more desirous in his heart to serve a friend than I am to serve mine if I knew how. But I don't know how to originate in such a case. 
if your sagacity knowledge and experience could put me on the right track i might be able to do so much unenlightened and undirected i can do so little pray discuss it with me pray enable me to see it a little more clearly and teach me how to be a little more useful dr manette sat meditating after these earnest words were spoken and mr lorry did not press him i think it probable said the doctor breaking silence with an effort that the relapse you have described my dear friend was not quite unforeseen by its subject was it dreaded by him mr lorry ventured to ask very much he said it with an involuntary shudder you have no idea how such an apprehension weighs on the sufferer's mind and how difficult how almost impossible it is for him to force himself to utter a word upon the topic that oppresses him would he asked mr lorry be sensibly relieved if he could prevail upon himself to impart that secret brooding to any one when it is on him i think so but it is as i have told you next to impossible i even believe it in some cases to be quite impossible now said mr lorry gently laying his hand on the doctor's arm again after a short silence on both sides to what would you refer this attack i believe returned dr manette that there had been a strong and extraordinary revival of the train of thought and remembrance that was the first cause of the malady some intense associations of a most distressing nature were vividly recalled i think it is probable that there had long been a dread lurking in his mind that those associations would be recalled say under certain circumstances say on a particular occasion he tried to prepare himself in vain perhaps the effort to prepare himself made him less able to bear it would he remember what took place in the relapse asked mr lorry with natural hesitation the doctor looked desolately round the room shook his head and answered in a low voice not at all now as to the future hinted mr lorry as to the future said the doctor recovering firmness i should have great hope as it pleased heaven in its mercy to restore him so soon i should have great hope he yielding under the pressure of a complicated something and long dreaded and long vaguely foreseen and contended against and recovering after the cloud had burst and passed i should hope that the worst was over well that's good comfort i am thankful said mr lorry i am thankful repeated the doctor bending his head with reverence there are two other points said mr lorry on which i am anxious to be instructed i may go on you cannot do your friend a better service the doctor gave him his hand to the first then he is of a studious habit and unusually energetic he applies himself with great ardor to the acquisition of professional knowledge to the conducting of experiments 
too many things. Now, does he do too much? Mm, I think not. It may be the character of his mind to be always in singular need of occupation. That may be in part natural to it, in part the result of affliction. The less it was occupied with healthy things, the more it would be in danger of turning in the unhealthy direction. He may have observed himself and made the discovery. You are sure that he is not under too great a strain. I think I am quite sure of it. My dear Manette, if he were overworked now, my dear Laurie, I doubt if that could easily be. There has been a violent stress in one direction, and it needs a counterweight. Excuse me as a persistent man of business. Assuming for a moment that he was overworked, it would show itself in some renewal of this disorder. I do not think so. I do not think, said Dr. Manette, with the firmness of self-conviction, that anything but the one train of association would renew it. I think that henceforth nothing but some extraordinary jarring of that cord could renew it. After what has happened, and after his recovery, I find it difficult to imagine any such violent sounding of that string again. I trust, and I almost believe, that the circumstances likely to renew it are exhausted. He spoke with the diffidence of a man who knew how slight a thing would overset the delicate organization of the mind, and yet with the confidence of a man who had slowly won his assurance out of personal endurance and distress. It was not for his friend to abate that confidence. He professed himself more relieved and encouraged than he really was, and approached his second and last point. He felt it to be the most difficult of all. But, remembering his old Sunday-morning conversation with Miss Pross, and remembering what he had seen in the last nine days, he knew that he must face it. The occupation resumed under the influence of this passing affliction so happily recovered from, said Mr. Lorry, clearing his throat. We will call blacksmith's work, blacksmith's work. We will say, to put a case, and for the sake of illustration, that he had been used in his bad time to work at a little forge. We will say that he was unexpectedly found at his forge again. Is it not a pity that he should keep it by him? The doctor shaded his forehead with his hand, and beat his foot nervously on the ground. He has always kept it by him, said Mr. Lorry, with an anxious look at his friend. Now would it not be better that he should let it go? Still the doctor, with shaded forehead, beat his foot nervously on the ground. "'You do not find it easy to advise me?' said Mr. Lorry. "'I quite understand it to be a nice question, and yet I think—' And there he shook his head and stopped. "'You see,' said Dr. Manette, turning to him after an uneasy pause, "'it is very hard to explain, consistently, the innermost workings of this poor man's mind.' He once yearned so frightfully for that occupation, and it was so welcome when it came. 
no doubt it relieved his pain so much by substituting the perplexity of the fingers for the perplexity of the brain and by substituting as he became more practised the ingenuity of the hands for the ingenuity of the mental torture that he has never been able to bear the thought of putting it quite out of his reach even now when i believe he is more hopeful of himself than he has ever been and even speaks of himself with a kind of confidence the idea that he might need that old employment and not find it gives him a sudden sense of terror like that which one may fancy strikes to the heart of a lost child he looked like his illustration as he raised his eyes to mr lorry's face but may not mind i ask for information as a plodding man of business who only deals with such material objects as guineas shillings and banknotes may not the retention of the thing involve the retention of the idea if the thing were gone my dear manette might not the fear go with it in short is it not a concession to the misgiving to keep the forge there was another silence you see too said the doctor tremulously it is such an old companion i would not keep it said mr lorry shaking his head for he gained in firmness as he saw the doctor disquieted i would recommend him to sacrifice it i only want your authority i am sure it does no good come give me your authority like a dear good man for his daughter's sake my dear manette very strange to see what a struggle there was within him in her name then let it be done i sanction it but i would not take it away while he was present let it be removed when he is not there let him miss his old companion after an absence mr lorry readily engaged for that and the conference was ended they passed the day in the country and the doctor was quite restored on the three following days he remained perfectly well and on the fourteenth day he went away to join lucy and her husband the precaution that had been taken to account for his silence mr lorry had previously explained to him and he had written to lucy in accordance with it and she had no suspicions on the night of the day on which he left the house mr lorry went into his room with a chopper saw chisel and hammer attended by miss pross carrying a light there with closed doors and in a mysterious and guilty manner mr lorry hacked the shoemaker's bench to pieces while miss pross held the candle as if she were assisting at a murder for which indeed in her grimness she was no unsuitable figure the burning of the body previously reduced to pieces convenient for the purpose was commenced without delay in the kitchen fire and the tools shoes and leather were buried in the garden so wicked do destruction and secrecy appear to honest minds that mr lorry and miss pross while engaged in the commission of their deed and in the removal of its traces almost felt and almost looked like accomplices in a horrible crime chapter twenty a plea 
when the newly married pair came home, the first person who appeared to offer his congratulations was Sidney Carton. They had not been at home many hours when he presented himself. He was not improved in habits or in looks or in manners, but there was a certain rugged air of fidelity about him which was new to the observation of Charles Darnay. He watched his opportunity of taking Darnay aside into a window and of speaking to him when no one overheard. "'Mr. Darnay,' said Carton, "'I wish we might be friends. We are already friends, I hope. You are good enough to say so as a fashion of speech, but I don't mean any fashion of speech. Indeed, when I say I wish we might be friends, I scarcely mean quite that, either." Charles Darnay, as was natural, asked him, in all good humour and good fellowship, what he did mean. "'Upon my life,' said Carton, smiling, "'I find that easier to comprehend in my own mind than to convey to yours. However, let me try.' You remember a certain famous occasion when I was more drunk than—than usual? I remember a certain famous occasion when you forced me to confess that you had been drinking. I remember it, too. The course of those occasions is heavy upon me, for I always remember them. I hope it may be taken into account one day, when all days are at an end for me. Don't be alarmed. I am not going to preach. I am not at all alarmed. Earnestness in you is anything but alarming to me." "'Ah!' said Carton, with a careless wave of his hand, as if he waved that away. "'On the drunken occasion in question, one of a large number, as you know, I was insufferable about liking you and not liking you. I wish you would forget it. I forgot it long ago fashion of speech again. But, Mr. Darnay, oblivion is not so easy to me as you represent it to be to you. I have by no means forgotten it, and a light answer does not help me to forget it." "'If it was a light answer,' returned Darnay, "'I beg your forgiveness for it. I had no other object than to turn a slight thing which, to my surprise, seems to trouble you too much, aside. I declare to you, on the faith of a gentleman, that I have long dismissed it from my mind. Good heaven! What was there to dismiss? Have I had nothing more important to remember in the great service you rendered me that day?" "'As to the great service,' said Carton, "'I am bound to avow to you, when you speak of it in that way that it was mere professional claptrap. I don't know that I cared what became of you when I rendered it. Mind, I say, when I rendered it, I am speaking of the past." "'You make light of the obligation,' returned Darnay, "'but I will not quarrel with your light answer. Genuine truth, Mr. Darnay, trust me. I have gone aside from my purpose. I was speaking about our being friends. Now, you know me, you know I am incapable of all the higher and better flights of men. If you doubt it, ask Stryver, and he'll tell you so. I prefer to form my own opinion without the aid of his." Well, at any rate, 
you know me as a dissolute dog who has never done any good and never will i don't know that you never will but i do and you must take my word for it well if you could endure to have such a worthless fellow and a fellow of such indifferent reputation coming and going at odd times i should ask that i might be permitted to come and go as a privileged person here that i might be regarded as a useless and i would add if it were not for the resemblance i detected between you and me an unornamental piece of furniture tolerated for its old service and taken no notice of i doubt if i should abuse the permission it is a hundred to one if i should avail myself of it four times in a year it would satisfy me i dare say to know that i had it will you try that is another way of saying that i am placed on the footing i have indicated i thank you darnay i may use that freedom with your name i think so carton by this time they shook hands upon it and sidney turned away within a minute afterwards he was to all outward appearance as unsubstantial as ever when he was gone and in the course of an evening passed with miss pross the doctor and mr lorry charles darnay made some mention of this conversation in general terms and spoke of sidney carton as a problem of carelessness and recklessness he spoke of him in short not bitterly or meaning to bear hard upon him but as anybody might who saw him as he showed himself he had no idea that this could dwell in the thoughts of his fair young wife but when he afterwards joined her in their own rooms he found her waiting for him with the old pretty lifting of the forehead strongly marked we are thoughtful to-night said darnay drawing his arm about her yes dearest charles with her hands on his breast and the inquiring and attentive expression fixed upon him we are rather thoughtful to-night for we have something on our mind to-night what is it my lucy will you promise not to press one question on me if i beg you not to ask it will i promise what will i not promise to my love what indeed with his hand putting aside the golden hair from the cheek and his other hand against the heart that beat for him i think charles poor mr carton deserves more consideration and respect than you expressed for him to-night indeed my own why so that is what you are not to ask me but i think i know he does if you know it it is enough what would you have me do my life i would ask you dearest to be very generous with him always and very lenient on his faults when he is not by i would ask you to believe that he has a heart he very very seldom reveals and that there are deep wounds in it my dear i have seen it bleeding it is a painful reflection to me said charles darnay quite astounded that i should have done him any wrong i never thought this of him my husband it is so i fear he is not to be reclaimed there is scarcely a hope that anything in his character or fortunes is reparable now 
but i am sure that he is capable of good things gentle things even magnanimous things she looked so beautiful in the purity of her faith in this lost man that her husband could have looked at her as she was for hours and oh my dearest love she urged clinging nearer to him laying her head upon his breast and raising her eyes to his remember how strong we are in our happiness and how weak he is in his misery the supplication touched him home i will always remember it dear heart i will remember it as long as i live he bent over the golden head and put the rosy lips to his and folded her in his arms if one forlorn wanderer then pacing the dark streets could have heard her innocent disclosure and could have seen the drops of pity kissed away by her husband from the soft blue eyes so loving of that husband he might have cried to the night and the words would not have parted from his lips for the first time god bless her for her sweet compassion chapter twenty one echoing footsteps a wonderful corner for echoes it has been remarked that corner where the doctor lived ever busily winding the golden thread which bound her husband and her father and herself and her old directress and companion in a life of quiet bliss lucy sat in the still house in the tranquilly resounding corner listening to the echoing footsteps of years at first there were times though she was a perfectly happy young wife when her work would slowly fall from her hands and her eyes would be dimmed for there was something coming in the echoes something light afar off and scarcely audible yet that stirred her heart too much fluttering hopes and doubts hopes of a love as yet unknown to her doubts of her remaining upon earth to enjoy that new delight divided her breast among the echoes then there would arise the sound of footsteps at her own early grave and thoughts of the husband who would be left so desolate and who would mourn for her so much swelled to her eyes and broke like waves that time passed and her little lucy lay on her bosom then among the advancing echoes there was the tread of her tiny feet and the sound of her prattling words let greater echoes resound as they would the young mother at the cradle-side could always hear those coming they came and the shadow-house was sunny with a child's laugh and the divine friend of children to whom in her trouble she had confided hers seemed to take her child in his arms as he took the child of old and made it a sacred joy to her ever busily winding the golden thread that bound them all together weaving the service of her happy influence through the tissue of all their lives and making it predominate nowhere lucy heard in the echoes of years none but friendly and soothing sounds her husband's step was strong and prosperous among them her father's firm and equal lo miss pross in harness of string awakening the echoes as an unruly charger whip corrected snorting and pawing the earth under the plane tree in the garden even when there were sounds of sorrow among the rest they were not harsh nor cruel even when golden hair like her own lay in a halo on a pillow round the worn face of a little boy and he said with a radiant smile 
dear papa and mamma i am very sorry to leave you both and to leave my pretty sister but i am cold and i must go those were not tears all of agony that wetted his young mother's cheeks as the spirit departed from her embrace that had been entrusted to it suffer them and forbid them not they see my father's face o oh, father blessed words thus the rustling of an angel's wings got blended with the other echoes and they were not wholly of earth but had in them that breath of heaven sighs of the winds that blew over a little garden tomb were tingled with them also and both were audible to lucy in a hushed murmur like the breathing of a summer sea asleep upon a sandy shore as the little lucy comically studious at the task of the morning or dressing a doll at her mother's footstool chattered in the tongues of the two cities that were blended in her life the echoes rarely answered to the actual tread of sidney carton some half-dozen times a year at most he claimed his privilege of coming in uninvited and would sit among them through the evening as he had once done often he never came there heated with wine and one other thing regarding him was whispered in the echoes which has been whispered by all true echoes for ages and ages no man ever really loved a woman lost her and knew her with a blameless though unchanged mind when she was a wife and a mother but her children had a strange sympathy with him an instinctive delicacy of pity for him what fine hidden sensibilities are touched in such a case no echoes tell but it is so and it was so here carton was the first stranger to whom little lucy held out her chubby arms and he kept his place with her as she grew the little boy had spoken of him almost at the last poor carton kiss him for me mr stryver shouldered his way through the law like some great engine forcing itself through turbid water and dragged his useful friend in his wake like a boat towed astern as the boat so favoured is usually in a rough plight and mostly under water so sidney had a swamped life of it but easy and strong custom unhappily so much easier and stronger in him than any stimulating sense of desert or disgrace made it the life he was to lead and he no more thought of emerging from his state of lion's jackal than any real jackal may be supposed to think of rising to be a lion stryver was rich had married a florid widow with property and three boys who had nothing particularly shining about them but the straight hair of their dumpling heads these three young gentlemen mr stryver exuding patronage of the most offensive quality from every pore had walked before him like three sheep to the quiet corner in soho and had offered as pupils to lucy's husband delicately saying hello here are three lumps of bread and cheese towards your matrimonial picnic darnay the polite rejection of the three lumps of bread and cheese had quite bloated mr stryver with indignation which he afterwards turned to account in the training of the young gentlemen by directing them to beware of the price of beggars like that tutor fellow he was also in the habit of declaiming to mrs stryver over his full-bodied wine on the arts mrs darnay had once put in practice to catch him and on the diamond cut diamond arts in himself madam which had rendered him not to be caught some of his king's bench familiars who were occasionally parties to the full-bodied wine and the lie 
excused him for the latter by saying that he had told it so often that he believed it himself, which is surely such an incorrigible aggravation of an originally bad offence as to justify any such offenders being carried off to some suitably retired spot and there hanged out of the way. These were among the echoes to which Lucy, sometimes pensive, sometimes amusing and laughing, listened in the echoing corner until her little daughter was six years old. How near to her heart the echoes of her child's tread came, and those of her own father's, always active and self-possessed, and those of her dear husband's, need not be told. Nor how the lightest echo of their united home, directed by herself with such a wise and elegant thrift, that it was more abundant than any waste, was music to her. Nor how there were echoes all about her, sweet in her ears, of the many times her father had told her that he found her more devoted to him married, if that could be, than single, and of the many times her husband had said to her that no cares and duties seemed to divide her love for him or her help to him, and asked her, What is the magic secret, my darling, of your being everything to all of us, as if there were only one of us, yet never seeming to be hurried or to have too much to do? But there were other echoes, from a distance, that rumbled menacingly in the corner all through this space of time. And it was now, about little Lucy's sixth birthday, that they began to have an awful sound, as of a great storm in France, with a dreadful sea rising. On a night in mid-July, 1,789, Mr. Lorry came in late from Tellson's, and sat himself down by Lucy and her husband in the dark window. It was a hot, wild night, and they were all three reminded of the old Sunday nights when they had looked at the lightning from the same place. "'I began to think,' said Mr. Lorry, pushing his brown wig back, "'that I should have to pass the night at Tellson's. We have been so full of business all day that we have not known what to do first, or which way to turn. There is such an uneasiness in Paris.' that we have actually a run of confidence upon us. Our customers over there seem not to be able to confide their property to us fast enough. There is positively a mania among some of them for sending it to England. That has a bad look, said Darnay. A bad look, you say, my dear Darnay? Yes, but we don't know what reason there is in it. People are so unreasonable. Some of us at Tellson's are getting old, and we really can't be troubled out of the ordinary course without due occasion. Still, said Darnay, you know how gloomy and threatening the sky is. I know that, to be sure, assented Mr. Lorry, trying to persuade himself that his sweet temper was soured and that he grumbled. But I am determined to be peevish after my long day's botheration. Where is Manette? "'Here he is,' said the doctor, entering the dark room at the moment. "'I am quite glad you are at home, for these hurries and forebodings by which I have been surrounded all day long have made me nervous without reason. You are not going out, I hope?' "'No, I am going to play backgammon with you, if you like,' said the doctor. "'I don't think I do like, if I may speak my mind.' I am not fit to be pitted against you to-night. Is the tea-board still there, Lucy? I can't see. 
Of course, it has been kept for you. Thank ye, my dear. The precious child is safe in bed, and sleeping soundly. That's right, all safe and well. I don't know why anything should be otherwise than safe and well here, thank God. But I have been so put out all day, and I am not as young as I was. My tea, my dear. Oh, thank you. Now come and take your place in the circle, and let us sit quiet and hear the echoes about which you have your theory. Not a theory. It was a fancy. A fancy, then, my wise pet, said Mr. Lorry, patting her hand. They are very numerous and very loud, though, are they not? Only hear them. Headlong, mad, and dangerous footsteps to force their way into anybody's life. Footsteps not easily made clean again if once stained red. The footsteps raging in St. Antoine far off, as the little circle sat in the dark London window. St. Antoine had been that morning a vast dusky mass of scarecrows heaving to and fro, with frequent gleams of light above the billowy heads, where steel blades and bayonets showed in the sun. A tremendous roar arose from the throat of St. Antoine, and a forest of naked arms struggled in the air like shriveled branches of trees in a winter wind, all the fingers convulsively clutching at every weapon or semblance of a weapon that was thrown up from the depths below, no matter how far off. Who gave them out, whence they last came, where they began, through what agency they crookedly quivered and jerked, scores at a time over the heads of the crowd, like a kind of lightning, no eye in the throng could have told. But muskets were being distributed, so were cartridges, powder, and ball, bars of iron and wood, knives, axes, pikes, every weapon that distracted ingenuity could discover or devise. People who could lay hold of nothing else set themselves with bleeding hands to force stones and bricks out of their places and walls. Every pulse and heart in St. Antoine was on high-fever strain and at high-fever heat. Every living creature there held life as of no account, and was demented with a passionate readiness to sacrifice it. As a whirlpool of boiling waters has a centre point, so all this raging circled around Defarge's wine-shop, and every human drop in the cauldron had a tendency to be sucked towards the vortex, where Defarge himself, already begrimed with gunpowder and sweat, issued orders, issued arms, thrust this man back, dragged this man forward, disarmed one to arm another, laboured and strove in the thickest of the uproar. "'Keep near to me, Jacques Three, cried Defarge, "'and do you, Jacques One and Two, separate, and put yourselves at the head of as many of these patriots as you can. Where is my wife?' "'Ah, well, here you see me.' said madame, composed as ever, but not knitting to-day. Madame's resolute right hand was occupied with an axe, in place of the usual softer implements, and in her girdle were a pistol and a cruel knife. "'Where do you go, my wife?' "'I go,' said madame, "'with you at present. You shall see me at the head of women, by and by.' "'Come, then,' cried Defarge, in a resounding voice, "'patriots and friends, we are ready. The Bastille! With a roar that sounded as if all the breath in France had been shaped into the detested word, the living sea rose, wave on wave, depth on depth, 
and overflowed the city to that point. Alarm bells ringing, drums beating, the sea raging and thundering on its new beach, the attack began. Deep ditches, double drawbridge, massive stone walls, eight great towers, cannon, muskets, fire and smoke. Through the fire and through the smoke, in the fire and in the smoke, for the sea cast him up against a cannon, and on the instant he became a cannoneer, Defarge of the wine-shop worked like a manful soldier, two fierce hours. Deep ditch, single drawbridge, massive stone walls, eight great towers, cannon, muskets, fire and smoke. One drawbridge down. Work, comrades all, work! Work, Jacques one, Jacques two, Jacques one thousand, Jacques two thousand, Jacques five and twenty thousand. In the name of all the angels or the devils, which you prefer, work. Thus Defarge of the wine-shop, still at his gun, which had long grown hot. "'To me, women!' cried Madame, his wife. "'What? We can kill as well as the men when the place is taken.' And to her, with a shrill, thirsty cry, trooping women variously armed, but all armed alike in hunger and revenge. Cannon, muskets, fire, and smoke— but still the deep ditch, the single drawbridge, the massive stone walls, and the eight great towers. Slight displacements of the raging sea made by the falling wounded. Flashing weapons, blazing torches, smoking wagon-loads of wet straw, hard work at neighboring barricades in all directions, shrieks, volleys, execrations, bravery without stint, boom, smash, and rattle, and the furious sounding of the living sea. But still the deep ditch and the single drawbridge and the massive stone walls and the eight great towers, and still Defarge of the wine shop and his gun, grown doubly hot by the service of four fierce hours. A white flag from within the fortress, and a parley, this dimly perceptible through the raging storm, nothing audible in it. Suddenly the sea rose immeasurably wider and higher and swept Defarge of the wine-shop over the lowered drawbridge, past the massive stone outer walls, in among the eight great towers, surrendered. So restless was the force of the ocean bearing him on, that even to draw his breath or turn his head was as impracticable as if he had been struggling in the surf at the South Sea, until he was landed in the outer courtyard of the Bastille. There, against an angle of a wall, he made a struggle to look about him. Jacques Three was nearly at his side. Madame Defarge, still heading some of her women, was visible in the inner distance, and her knife was in her hand. Everywhere was tumult, exultation, deafening and maniacal bewilderment, astounding noise, yet furious dumb-show. The prisoners, the records, the secret cells, the instruments of torture, the prisoners! Of all of these cries, and ten thousand incoherences, the prisoners, was the cry most taken up by the sea that rushed in, as if there was an eternity of people, as well as of time and space. When the foremost billows rolled past, bearing the prison officers with them, and threatening them all with instant death if any secret nook remained undisclosed, Defarge laid his strong hand on the breast of one of these men, a man with a grey head, who had a lighted torch in his hand, separated him from the rest, and got him between himself and the wall. 
show me the north tower said defarge quick i will faithfully replied the man if you will come with me but there is no one there what is the meaning of one hundred five north tower asked defarge quick the meaning monsieur does it mean a captive or a place of captivity or do you mean that i shall strike you dead kill him croaked jacques three who had him close up monsieur it is a cell show it to me pass this way then jacques three with his usual craving on him and evidently disappointed by the dialogue taking a turn that did not seem to promise bloodshed held by defarge's arm as he held by the turnkeys their three heads had been close together during this brief discourse and it had been as much as they could do to hear one another even then so tremendous was the noise of the living ocean in its eruption into the fortress and its inundation of the courts and passages and staircases all around outside too it beat the walls with a deep hoarse roar from which occasionally some partial shouts of tumult broke and leaped into the air like spray through gloomy vaults where the light of day had never shone past hideous doors of dark dens and cages down cavernous flights of steps and again up steep rugged ascents of stone and brick more like dry waterfalls than staircases defarge the turnkey and jacques three linked hand and arm went with all the speed they could make here and there especially at first the inundation started on them and swept by but when they had done descending and were winding and climbing up a tower they were alone hemmed in here by the massive thickness of walls and arches the storm within the fortress and without was only audible to them in a dull subdued way as if the noise out of which they had come had almost destroyed their sense of hearing the turnkey stopped at a low door put a key in the clashing lock swung the door slowly open and said as they all bent their heads and passed in one hundred and five north tower there was a small heavily grated unglazed window high in the wall with a stone screen before it so that the sky could be only seen by stooping low and looking up there was a small chimney heavily barred across a few feet within there was a heap of old feathery wood ashes on the hearth there was a stool and table and a straw bed there were the three blackened walls and a rusted iron ring in one of them pass that torch slowly along these walls that i may see them said defarge to the turnkey the man obeyed and defarge followed the light closely with his eyes stop look here jacques a m croaked jacques three as he read greedily alexandre manette said defarge in his ear following the letters of his swart forefinger deeply ingrained with gunpowder and here he wrote a poor physician and it was he without doubt who scratched a calendar on this stone what is that in your hand a crowbar give it to me he had still the linnick of his gun in his own hand he made a sudden exchange of the two instruments and turning on the worm-eaten stool and table beat them to pieces in a few blows hold the light higher he said wrathfully to the turnkey look among those fragments with care jacques and see here is my knife throwing it to him rip open that bed and search the straw hold that light higher you 
with a menacing look at the turnkey he crawled upon the hearth and peering up the chimney struck and prized at its sides with the crowbar and worked at the iron grating across it in a few minutes some mortar and dust came dropping down which he averted his face to avoid and in it and in the old wood ashes and in a crevice in the chimney into which his weapon had slipped or rot itself he groped with a cautious touch nothing in the wood and nothing in the straw jacques nothing let us collect them together in the middle of the cell so light them you the turnkey fired the little pile which blazed high and hot stooping again to come out at the low arched door they left it burning and retraced their way to the courtyard seeming to recover their sense of hearing as they came down until they were in the raging flood once more they found it surging and tossing in quest of defarge himself saint antoine was clamorous to have its wine-shop keeper foremost in the guard upon the governor who had defended the bastille and shot the people otherwise the governor would not be marched to the hotel de ville for judgment otherwise the governor would escape and the people's blood suddenly of some value after many years of worthlessness be unavenged in the howling universe of passion and contention that seemed to encompass this grim old officer conspicuous in his gray coat and red decoration there was but one quite steady figure and that was a woman's see there is my husband she cried pointing him out see defarge she stood immovable close to the grim old officer and remained immovable close to him remained immovable close to him through the streets as defarge and the rest bore him along remained immovable close to him when he was got near his destination and began to be struck at from behind remained immovable close to him when the long gathering rain of stabs and blows fell heavy was so close to him when he dropped dead under it that suddenly animated she put her foot upon his neck and with her cruel knife long ready hewed off his head the hour was come when saint antoine was to execute his horrible idea of hoisting up men for lamps to show what he could be and do saint antoine's blood was up and the blood of tyranny and domination by the iron hand was down down on the steps of the hotel de ville where the governor's body lay down on the sole of the shoe of madame defarge where she had trodden on the body to steady it for mutilation lower the lamp yonder cried saint antoine after glaring round for a means of death here is one of his soldiers to be left on guard the swinging sentinel was posted and the sea rushed on the sea of black and threatening waters and of destructive upheaving of wave against wave whose depths were yet unfathomed and whose forces were yet unknown the remorseless sea of turbulently swaying shapes voices of vengeance and faces hardened in the furnaces of suffering until the touch of pity could make no mark on them but in the ocean of faces where every fierce and furious expression was in vivid life there were two groups of faces each seven in number so fixedly contrasting with the rest that never did sea roll which bore more memorable wrecks with it seven faces of prisoners suddenly released by the storm that had burst their tomb were carried high overhead all scared all lost all wondering and amazed 
as if the last day were come, and those who rejoiced around them were lost spirits. Other seven faces there were, carried higher, seven dead faces, whose drooping eyelids and half-seen eyes awaited the last day. Impassive faces, yet with a suspended, not an abolished expression on them. Faces rather in a fearful pause, as having yet to raise the dropped lids of the eyes, and bear witness with the bloodless lips, Thou didst it. Seven prisoners released, seven gory heads on pikes, the keys of the accursed fortress of the eight strong towers, some discovered letters and other memorials of prisoners of old time, long dead of broken hearts, such and such, like the loudly echoing footsteps of Saint Antoine, escort through the Paris streets in mid-July one thousand seven hundred and eighty-nine. Now, heaven defeat the fancy of Lucy Darnay, and keep those feet far out of her life, for they are headlong, mad, and dangerous, and in the years so long after the breaking of the cask at Defarge's wine-shop door, they are not easily purified when once stained red. End of Part 7